If you have a Bible today, I want to invite you to turn to the book of Genesis chapter 49. Today we're going to talk about Joseph's father's death. As Jacob approaches death, he calls his family together. And I hate death. I'm sure you do too. The Bible calls it our last enemy. And unfortunately, it's part of this world. It's part of the curse. And all of us need to prepare for it and learn how to grieve through it. All right, this morning we're in Genesis chapter 49. Now, technically, this is linked to chapter 48 in that in chapter 48, we saw last week that that Jacob called Joseph and his two grandsons to, to, to pronounce blessings on them. Now, Jacob in chapter 49 is going to call his 12 sons together. This time, it's going to be a corporate blessing. And, and this is a really pivotal moment in Joseph's life. It's a, it's a precious passage of scripture. It's kind of like the pizza commercial, what do you want on your tombstone? Remember that? And, you know, we talk a lot about people's final words, and, and, I, and it's good to be reminded that at the end of our journey, please remember this, that nobody lays on their deathbed going, bring me my portfolio, remind me how much money I made. Almost inevitably, at the end of our lives, we think about our family. And it's really sad to think that there are many people who have burned bridges with family and friends and, and sort of die a lonely and regretful life. And so as we look at this passage, it's, it's well worth thinking at the end of my life, if I have any family or loved ones or children and I gather them around, um, what would I want to say to them? Now, there's a couple things I want to say about this chapter. Number one, it's the first lengthy poem in the Bible. So particularly in the original language, there's a lot of word plays here. So Perhaps this wasn't exactly how he said it unless he had written the poem out, but as Moses recorded it, and quite likely uh, Jacob had thought this through. So what he's going to do is he's going to pronounce blessings on his children. But ironically, it's worth noting here that there's also what might be called anti-blessings. In other words, he's going to rehearse the history of his sons, and he's going to say, because you did this, therefore you're not going to get this blessing. So as we're going through this section, it's kind of worth thinking about, wow, decisions matter. Things that I decide to do now, the trajectory of my life and, and the, the values that I have, not only are going to affect my own personal life, if I, if I, if I turn and, and decide to go into a life of sin, that I'm going to reap what I sow, but in addition to that, that these consequences may be cast upon my children and my grandchildren. So as we're going through this, I want you to think about a couple things. Number one, remember that the book of Genesis began with God's creative word, and then he pronounced a blessing on everything. Jacob's gathering his sons together, and he's pronouncing a blessing. However, we could sort of say, hey, I wish and hope for my children to be successful. Jacob under the influence of the Holy Spirit, is making prophetic announcements, okay? He has the authority and blessing of his fathers, Abraham and Isaac, to actually, what he's going to say is going to happen. He's not going, oh, I kind of hope this happens. The two sons that he elevates the most and who get the most attention in this chapter are Judah and Joseph. So let's work through this, and you'll note that with each son, he'll either do some sort of a wordplay with their name, or he'll compare them to an animal. So let's pray together, and then we'll work through it and talk about its relevance in our lives. Father, thank you for this chapter. It's a very special chapter in Scripture, and one 
worth reflecting on, and I pray that all of us as Christians, as we read Scripture together, will be edified, learn how to read the Bible better, that we will see Christ in all of his glory and beauty, and that we will also um, be challenged to think about our own lives as we pass on uh, heritage and blessing to our children and grandchildren. We pray these things for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 1, Then Jacob summoned his sons and said, Assemble yourselves that I may tell you what shall befall you in the days to come. Now that phrase, days to come, in the Old Testament is loaded, okay? In the days to come. When the prophets spoke of this, they sometimes spoke of the near uh, events to come. In the days to come, the Babylonians will come and over, overtake you. But it also had a longer trajectory in which the days to come would, would span all the way into eternity. And so this man is very sick. When he gets done this thing, it says he, he draws in his knees and he dies. So these are his, his dying blessings. Verse 2, now this is where the poetry begins. And in Hebrew poetry, there's often sort of a repetition to reinforce things. Gather together and hear, O sons of Jacob, and listen to Israel, your father. And so picture the 12 sons around his bed. So he starts with Reuben. Now, I want to say something about the order here. He does not go in the order of their age, but he starts with the two sons of Leah, which was his wife. Then he does all of the sons of his concubines, and then he ends with the two sons of Rachel, his favorite, and his two dearest youngest sons, which are Joseph and Benjamin, the sons of Rachel. So they're not all in, in order of age, but he does start with Reuben. Now, we do know this much if you've been here. The firstborn is supposed to get the most, a double portion, the highest honor, the boss man, the blessing, more moolah, more cash, more land, more authority. But notice Reuben is going to get an anti-blessing. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the beginning of my strength. You are preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. This was yours. But notice that he lost it. Uncontrolled as water, you shall not have preeminence. So, wow, I, I wonder how Reuben felt. Like, Reuben, you are the preeminent one, but you're not going to get preeminence. Why, what did I do? He says, you are uncontrolled as water. In Hebrew, it could be translated boiling over. Water is very unstable, right? There's no restraint. There's no control of water. It just kind of overflows. And so what he's actually talking about here, he tells us, he goes, this is the consequence because you went up to your father's bed, you defiled it. We learn from earlier in the book in chapter 34 that Jacob had a concubine of wives and in his pride and arrogance and sexual lust, Reuben just decided, I'm going to go sleep with one of my dad's daughters. And it just says one little phrase, then, then Reuben slept with his concubine. Nothing, that's all it says. But Jacob didn't forget it and God didn't forget it. And this is, a, this is an enormous warning to us. 
of the necessity of self-control when it comes to sexuality. And we're all in the same game here. We need to pray for one another. Sexual sin has devastating consequences. In fact, notice how he turns from you defiled it, and then he sort of addresses his brothers. He went up to my couch. Now in verses 5 through 7, he's going to turn to the next two sons, Simeon and Levi, who interestingly are also going to get an anti-blessing. And it's also because of a lack of self-control, but this time it's not in the realm of sexuality. Look at verse 5. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Their swords are implements of violence. Now, what he's thinking back to here earlier in the the book is, if you remember in Genesis 34, their sister, Dinah, was raped by, by one of the Canaanites. When they found out where that boy was from, Simeon and Levi went to that entire village and said, hey, listen, we would love for you to to join us. We want you to be part of our community. But in order to do that, everyone has to be circumcised. And so all of the adult males and and children, they all circumcised themselves. And then, obviously, for the next few days, they would have been incapable of defending themselves. Simeon and Levi went there and slaughtered them all, killed them all. Okay? Now, we understand the necessity for justice and punishment, right? Like, yeah, the person who, who raped their sister, it would have been quite fair for them to seek justice on him. But in their rage and anger, they, they way over the top killed the entire city. And as a result of that, look what the Word of God says about them. Joseph says, or Jacob says, let not my soul enter into their counsel. Now, that word was often used for advisors gathering for war. Let not my glory be united with their assembly, because in their anger they slew. Now, interestingly, in in the original it says they slew a man, right? So maybe that's talking about the the actual person who committed the the rape, or, or corporally they slew all of the city. And in their self-will, they lamed oxen. Now, we don't know particularly about that because in Genesis 34, it says that they, they killed most of the animals and they took some of them. But this was an incredibly cruel thing that people did in Bible times to, to just maliciously um, bring havoc to the people you attack. If you hamstring an ox and you cut his tendons, right, he's ruined. Not only ruined for work, but it's incredibly cruel to that animal, right? He's going to suffer and just not even be able to walk. So again, what we find here, notice it says in their self-will, and all of us are like, well, I had a right to do that. What they did made me mad. And what we need to understand is that anger is not sin. But what we do with our anger is incredibly significant. We're going to come back to that. But we're reminded from the Bible that God is the one who takes vengeance. But because Simeon and Levi decided to take matters in their own hands, which we're all tempted to do, notice the consequences. Verse 7, Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. And anyone who grew up in a home with an angry person 
knows what that felt like to be under an angry, wrathful person who lacked self-control. And some of you have been wounded by a person like that. But I can assure you by the grace of God and through the help of the Lord Jesus Christ, that number one, you don't have to become like that. And number two, the Lord can heal you and help you to, to work through that. And number three, if that's you, right, and the shoe fits, there's hope for you in the gospel. Number one, that through your humble repentance, God will forgive that. And that through your apologies and extensions of mercy over time, hopefully the Lord will bring healing to some of those damages that you've done. But part of the consequence is that God says, I will disperse them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. And, and the Levites, interestingly, at this point, God knew that they were going to be the tribe that would be given the priesthood. But you're like, wow, well, if they're cursed, how they get the priesthood? And that's probably because later on, there were two times where the Levites first stood up for Moses and actually were willing to, to um, slaughter those who were bringing sin into the camp. And then also they had one particular one named Phineas who was so devoted to the Lord's holiness. We saw in the book of Numbers that the Lord blessed him with a covenant of the priesthood. And so... It is interesting that the Levites became the ones who were in charge. Not only, we, we tend to think of them, yeah, they're the ones who, who took care of the worship. They were also the temple guards. And in Deuteronomy, it says that it was the Levites' job for anyone who, who profanely came into the holy premises of the, the holy place to put them to death. So you go, wow, this is kind of depressing. The first three guys, they didn't get a blessing. They got a beat down. But, but it's worth noting, like, wow, I should think about what I do with my life. Now we come to Judah, and Judah gets the second most attention here. He gets verses 8 through 12. And what's interesting about Judah is he didn't exactly have a blameless past, right? He went in with a prostitute. Remember we saw that? And then he wanted to have his daughter-in-law put to death. But commentators suggest that Judah experienced a radical repentance. And we see that. We see that later in Judah's life, he was incredibly interested in the care for his father, and he was willing to give his own life to spare both his little brother and his father's grief. And as a result of his repentance, God exalts him to a very preeminent position among the tribes. And so let's see what God says. Now remember, some of them he'll compare to an animal. For the first time, he's going to compare one of the sons of an animal. In this case, he's going to compare Judah to a lion. And of course, a lion was, was, was the king back then. The lion was, as we say, the king of the jungle, jungle um, both beautiful and, and, and powerful and dignified and symbolic of a leader. And so he says to Judah, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. And, and that was symbolic of of chasing after your enemies and, and grabbing them by the nape of the neck and bringing them into submission. Later, there would be pictures as well of putting your foot on their neck. And so notice that the elevated position, your father's son shall bow down to you. Very similar, remember, to Joseph's dream. You guys are going to bow down to me. So clearly, Jod Judah is being exalted here to a position of leadership. And now he's compared to a lion. Judah is a lion's whelp or a lion's cub. 
From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He couches. Now, when it says couches here, literally he bows down. Remember that lions had what was called a lair. They would often, behind some vegetation, lay and and sleep in a cooler little hole in the ground. And that was a place where they would rest. But it was also a place where they could pounce on their prey. And so either he's resting here or he's couching, ready to jump. But he, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion, who dares rouse him up? Sometimes uh, with my grandkids, my wife and I and the other family will say, hey, what animal do you think this person is? What, what animal do you think that is? Oh, you, and, and the little one, the little boy Grady, he's sort of the, you know, the spokesman. And so we're doing different animals. And he said, what is Pop? And he said, Pop's a lion. And I was like, I love that kid. I just, <laughs> he really has good character judgment, right? So, so this idea of being compared to a lion was, was, was really significant. But look at verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. Now, a scepter obviously was, was the kingly staff that he ruled with. They didn't have a king yet. So this is prophetic. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. There's actually a a picture that they have found from, from this time in which one of the ancient rulers had his, his stick between his feet. And so notice that there's a kingship coming in Judah. And then it says in verse 10, until Shiloh comes. Now, this is a difficult word. Shiloh could be referring to a later location where the tabernacle was temporarily built. But probably it's better translated here until he comes to whom it belongs. The scepter won't depart from this tribe until he comes to whom that scepter belongs. This exact same phrase is used in Ezekiel 21, verse 27, where God again speaks of a coming king and his scepter to whom it belongs. And so while some have taken Shiloh here to be a term for Jesus... I don't think we need to do that, but I think we could safely say this. If you don't see Jesus here, wake up and smell the coffee. This is clearly a prophetic prediction about Christ. Even the Jews who don't recognize Jesus as the Messiah, all of them agree that this is a messianic prophecy. And it's a beautiful picture of the coming Lord Jesus because it says, the scepter is there until he comes and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Now, of course, its nearer fulfillment would be in King David from the tribe of Judah who would bring the surrounding nations into submission. But ultimately, we clearly know that this is the Lord Jesus who in the book of Revelation is called the Lion of the tribe of Judah who has overcome. And when it says the obedience of the nations, it's worthwhile to remember of all the seven billion people on the planet, one day the Bible says, Every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. Some willingly, and this is why in this life we urge you to come and believe and surrender to Christ that you might become a forgiven follower. But you can resist, but you cannot run when the lamb and the lion comes back and we're forced to bow. And so it's really encouraging when we think about it, the heart and soul of Christian discipleship is what? To learn to love and trust and obey Jesus. 
the Great Commission, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptize them and teach them to obey. And so way back thousands of years before that, God is predicting, here will come the one to whom the staff belongs and to him shall be the obedience of the nations. And it is, I think it's incredibly cool to be in a period of time where we're seeing this unfold, that the king has come, died and rose again, and he is advancing his kingdom. And all over the world, remember, it's not just little America that people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation are being brought under his blood-bought covenant. People uh, from, from every walk of life are coming into submission to Christ. And it reminds us, hey, this is our job. This is what we're here for as churches and parents and families as well. And then the last two verses speak of his beauty and his wealth. It's very interesting. There's an entire psalm, if you've ever read Psalm 45, that speaks of the beauty of the king. In fact, we used to sing these songs. They were called hymns. And one of them was called Out of the Ivory Palaces. And it spoke of, of the beauty and, 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 and even the garments of the king and, and how good he smelled and just a wonderful um, description of this beautiful king that was coming, which is obviously ultimately in Christ. But notice the enormous wealth and beauty of, of, of this king. He ties his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. There's a couple things going on there. Number one, a donkey was symbolic of a king. Kings rode on donkeys back then. They didn't all ride on white horses. In fact, Zechariah 9 predicted Palm Sunday, behold your king riding on a donkey. There's a couple things that are interesting here. Number one, who would tie their donkey to a vine, to a choice vine? A choice vine back then was like gold, right? You protected that sucker. Nobody got near that choice vine. No, no kids were allowed to play with their machetes near your choice vine, which was bringing forth all of this fruit. So number one, if you tie your donkey to it, it's going to eat the fruit. And number two, it must be an enormously strong vine. It must be a huge vine if you can tie your donkey to it. Either you have a really calm donkey or you have a really strong vine. Or, and I think this is the point, you are so blessed and so prosperous that it doesn't matter. You're Scrooge McDuck. You have so much wealth and blessing that big deal. Let him eat the grapes. There's so many I can't even count them. And then he says something very interesting. He says, he washes his garments in wine. And you're going, that doesn't sound like a good idea. It seems like everything... Um, my wife sort of doesn't like me to do her laundry because sometimes I get those color schemes a little confused, right? Who would wash their clothes in wine, right? So it might just say that there's so much wine is more abundant than water. But then there's, there, there's a mystery here because then it says, and he washes his robes in the blood of grapes. Jacob, why blood here? Why not juice? Why not wine? Well, it is possible here that this inference to the blood of grapes is an inference to that, to that great but scary day when Christ will come and trample out, the Bible says, the winepress of the wrath of God and the blood, the book of Revelation says, will be splattered up to the horse's bridle. And it's kind of scary even as we sing glory, glory, hallelujah. This is nothing to think lightly of that when Christ returns, he will pour out his wrath. He will open up the, the can of whoop on steroids and, and you don't want to be on the wrong side. 
and you don't want to, to face the wrath of the coming Lord Jesus. The Bible says that when this day unfolds, men will hide under rocks and say, hide us from the wrath of the Lamb, for the day of his wrath has come. But then speaking of his beauty, it says his eyes are, now what's weird about the, the numeric standard says dull, some translations say darker, but the Hebrew literally means sparkling. His eyes are sparkling. So, so, so here is his beauty and his teeth white from milk. So, so even his external appearance. And, and again, this, this befits us to just meditate on Jesus. We could just talk of his beauty and his power and his love and his, and his royalty, but we don't have time to do that. But we, we can continue to pray these things through. Now, let's move a little more quickly in a couple of these. We'll come to Joseph and we'll wrap it up. Zebulun shall dwell at the seashore, and, and he shall be a haven for ships, and his flank shall be towards Sidon. Now, probably here the, the seashore is not the Mediterranean, but the Sea of Galilee. Remember, in the prophecy of, of the birth of Christ, when he would go to Galilee of the Gentiles, Zebulun, by the seashore. And so Zebulun was assigned a, a place. And you could do some more research. It's interesting to see where these pe- people are located Issachar now Issachar this is kind of sad Issachar seems to be portrayed as a as a lazy and weak man not necessarily weak in strength but weak in character unwilling to stand up for himself and again sometimes it's interesting, the Bible is so practical, it's so personal. We, we see in ourselves, we see in others, some of these traits. Notice what it says about Issachar. Issachar, on the one hand, he's a strong donkey, or literally, he's a donkey of bone, right? Like, talk about somebody have a hard head like a donkey. But then notice, he's lying down between the sheepfolds when he saw that a resting place was good and the land was pleasant. And you're like, no, I like Issachar. He's like me. We, gotta, you know, we have to find time for our rest. You know? All work makes a guy kind of dull. You know? We got to get our chill here. So what? So, so he liked his hammock, right? But notice carefully, he, he was very fond of lying down and resting. He bowed his shoulder to bear burdens and became a slave of forced labor. And what we actually find from some, some archaeological discoveries is that it appears that Issachar wasn't the only one, but remember, when they were supposed to go in and take over the land, each of the 12 tribes was told, now go in there and whoop the Canaanites and take it. But some of the tribes were too weak and cowardly and were willing to settle for subjugation. In other words, some of the, the people of God, even though the land was before them, just said, to the Canaanites, hey, let us just be your servants. If you'll just leave us alone and, and, and we can still live here. And so it's interesting that here Issachar is sort of called out for being an underachiever. There's a time to rest, but there's also a time to work. And I couldn't help but think with all of the, the cries for socialism right now, I'm going, man, it's so destructive in that in that the, the, the results of that are is it, it often fosters laziness. And it's easy to give away someone else's money. But here, all the way back then, someone is, is called out for going, wow, 
It's a car, and, he, and he, really, he becomes sort of a nobody in Scripture. And then we read of Dan. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel, and so he's given a significant place of, of being involved in judgment and justice. Dan shall be a serpent in the way. There were 33 types of snakes that have been documented at this time. 20 of them were poison, okay? So he was a horned snake in the path that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls backwards. For thy salvation I wait, O Lord. Wait, what? Jake, hang on. Right in the middle here, he just throws in this little prayer. We don't want to miss this. He's unfolding about what's going to happen, and we see some of his sons, oh, man, it's not going to go good. Some of them are under subjection. There's turmoil, there's strife, there's war, there's backfighting. For thy salvation I wait, O Lord. That's a wonderful truth. That really, that's part of what it truly means to be a Christian. The word here can be translated deliverance, right? And in many ways, that's, that's the ongoing life of the Christian, right? One trial after another. And as I go through the trials, I wait for you, O Lord. But ultimately, the consummation is the very heart and soul of being a Christian is to turn our backs on this world and its sin and to follow Christ waiting for his return. And so think of the songs that we sing as we wait, right? Some of you are in trial right now. Some of you are in testing with health. And as we shared about my son-in-law, Psalm 27 says, be strong let your heart take courage and wait patiently for the Lord. My wife and I often remember that one of our dear friends, an older lady who's a godly, prayerful woman, she always says, don't forget, God is an on-time God, right? And I'm like, yeah, but we need to synchronize a little bit here. But that's the point. Wait, wait. It's always too soon to quit. Watch and pray and be faithful to God. So he goes on and he speaks of Gad and the raiders, of Asher and his rich food in verse 20 because of location, lots of fertility in the land, and then Naphtali, the, the doe. But quickly, let's look at Joseph. Joseph gets the best and the most. He gets the, the, he's the man. He gets, this is in essence, the blessing that should have gone to the firstborn. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring. Its branches run over a wall. It's just abundance. Now he's probably thinking back to how his brothers jerked him around, how, how Potiphar's wife accused him, all of the hard things he went through. The archers bitterly attacked him and shot at him and harassed him, but his bows remained firm. His bow remained firm. His arms were agile. Listen, if you've been a Christian for a while, you got some scars. The devil has pew, pew, shot some bows at you and some arrows have hit you, right? And all of us are kind of limping along from some of our own mistakes and some of the troubles that we've seen in life. But by the grace of God, like Joseph, our goal is that our bow, remain, our bow remains firm. And why? Because we're so strong. Give me another one on the chin. Not for any other reason than the grace of God. Look at how the grace of God has brought us safe thus far. If you're still following the Lord, it's not because of your great fortitude, it's because of his great faithfulness. Look what the text says. How, Joseph, were you able to endure all this? From the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. From the God of your father who helps you and by the almighty who blesses you. And, and notice all the blessings that are both blessings on his family, 
blessings of fertility both in people and, and in prosperity and land, blessings of heaven above, blessings that lie beneath, blessings of the breast and the womb, the blessings of your father having surpassed the blessing of my ancestors up to the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. May it all be on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of the one who distinguishes himself among his brothers. Benjamin's a ravenous wolf. Ravenous wolf in the morning he devours prey and in the evening he divides spoil. Now here it is. All these, the 12 tribes of Israel, and this is what their father said to them when he blessed them. He blessed them. Now look at this. Everyone with literally the blessing according to his blessing. How'd you like to be in the chariot on the ride home for each of those 12 sons? They weren't all smiling. It's kind of like at the well. What? He left. What, Uncle Larry? A loser never even called him, right? So at the end of the day, you go, well, what do I do with this? Is this just God's sovereignty or, or consequences of my responsibility? And I would say, yes. So as we close, I want to just point out a couple of things we're thinking about. Number one, don't forget that both for Reuben with his sexual lack of self-control and for Simeon and Levi that their anger, lack of self-control had devastating consequences both for them and their descendants. And so this morning, let me remind you and me how dangerous a lack of self-control is. And that in and of yourself, don't think you can just go home and, 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 and count to 10 more often. Or that somehow with, if you're being enslaved to sexual sin or pornography or any other manner of sexual sin, that, that you'll simply cut off your right hand and try harder. There is no solution that truly sticks other than submission and surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the fruit of the Holy Spirit is self-control. And you can little red train it as much as you want. I think I can, I think I can. But you're going to end up in the same place over and over again, spinning your wheels. But if you are being overtaken by a lack of self-control in your sexuality or in your anger or in any other area, number one, you have to ask yourself, do you want to stop? When is enough enough? If you have an addiction, don't come and ask me what's the best rehab because they're all good or none of them are good unless you have a repentant heart. But if you want to be freed, Jesus is the, is the chain breaker. And I don't preach this as some graduate of the school of self-control. Please pray for every one of your pastors and spiritual leaders. God knows how often Satan wants to drag us into a, a lack of self-control. And many a Christian has sacrificed the permanent on the altar of the immediate. And so I, I feel deeply what Paul said, lest after I preach to others, I become a castaway. And so I try to throw myself regularly in, in the presence of the Lord and say, Lord, please deliver me from, from myself and from evil and from the evil one. That's a great reminder this morning. Secondly, let me just encourage you to consider that whatever you're going through, go home today and say, Lord Jesus, I wait. I wait for your deliverance. I take you off of my agenda Right? You might not do it right now. You might not fix my marriage right now. You might not fix my health, my depression, my anxiety, my fears. I'm, my son-in-law might not get a job today. But I wait for your salvation, O oh Lord. 
And that's a hard thing to do. Only Christ can enable us. Lord, fix my kid. Do you see these things? And he, he hasn't forgotten us. And then recognize that with all of those scars from the arrows of Satan, if you're still standing, hallelujah, it's because God has helped us, amen? The stone has stood with me. His grace has brought me safe thus far. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Praise Jesus, amen? Two more things. Some of our future blessings on us and our descendants are based on our decisions and the direction of our lives. So you might say, Pastor, I wish I heard this 20 years ago. Well, I probably wish I heard it 20 years ago too. But at the end of the day, there is no reverse for that. I can't go back and do anything about my past. But what I can do is I can proceed recognizing, number one, that the Bible says the mercies of the Lord are new every morning. The older I get, the more I understand why David said, dear God, remember not the sins of my youth. And I am so glad that God's grace doesn't bless and use us because of us, but in spite of us. But remember Judah. He wasn't blameless. But yet the trajectory of his life was one that brought him into a place of blessing and leadership. And so I encourage you, don't let Satan beat you with that whipping stick of your past. If you've repented, then the Bible says, forget what lies behind and press on. The Bible says, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and he will abundantly pardon. I thank God for Jonah 3 verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. And some of you might be in the fish's belly right now. We can do this the easy way or the hard way. God's gone. So thank you, Jesus. And I, and I think I could say with you that I want to see this on my kids, right? I pray daily. I plead with God that he would turn the hearts of my children and every one of my grandchildren to Christ. That's what David prayed. He said, Father, turn my son Solomon's heart to you. I'm not out there writing books. I'm wearing my knees out. That's how you raise your kids for Christ. Not with our pompous, you know, well, just do this and this and you'll have great kids. But ultimately, let's leave on this. Jesus is the lion. He's, he's the, the, the one who came and died and rose again. The lion of the tribe of Judah who, two things, as a Christian, he's calling me to obedience. Jacob said, to him shall be the obedience of the people. And for all those ways that you are not obeying him, and I'm not obeying him, let's repent and change and do those things by his grace and through his spirit that he calls us to do, that we might experience the blessing of the Lord on our church and in our families. But at the end of the day, it's all about Jesus, isn't it? To him be the glory. And so would you close with me in prayer? And if there's anyone here that wants to meet him and wants to be forgiven, then just talk to someone. It sometimes staggers me how rarely people come and say, my soul is troubled about my salvation. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this time. Thank you for the, the precious Lord Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah. 
May the word of God continue to wound and heal, to comfort and to convict. May we find grace to help us in our days to come. Thank you so much, Lord, for all the arrows that have been shot of us, that you are our strength and helper. Forgive us corporately for our failures in the past. Help us not to be weighed down by them, but may your blessing be upon us, and we thank you that you already have blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. In Jesus' name we give thanks, and may your grace be upon us. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful day.